Well, this morning we are back in John chapter 4, so if you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, you can, can open up there. We're in the, the third and, and final part of this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground, so just briefly, let me, let me catch you up to where we've come from in the first two sections of this chapter. A couple of weeks ago, in the first week, in verses 1 to 18, we, we saw Jesus and this woman start to engage in a conversation. And Jesus just masterfully moved from, hey, will you get me a drink? To exposing the deepest longings of her heart. Go and bring your husband. And he wasn't just pointing out the sin and brokenness in her life. He, he said, I can see, I know you. We've been tracking with this theme throughout John that Jesus knows us. And he says, listen, I will give you living water. And, and if you, you drink that living water, you will never thirst again. I, I can fulfill the deepest desires of your heart, Jesus was saying. He's just, Jesus is just a master at these disarming questions. And then going deep. And it may sound silly as I say that, but honestly, we need to learn from Jesus. That's actually pretty obvious. We all need to learn lots from Jesus because that's a huge part of why he came, was to show us how to really live and, and instruct us and lead us and guide us in, in all manner of life and godliness. But we need to learn this from Jesus, how to create conversations and engage in conversation that start with a really harmless, disarming question, but have the ability to move to something much more important and much deeper. Again, Jesus starts with a simple question, and he's, he goes against all the social conventions of the time. He was a male asking a female a question, speaking to a, a female. He was a Jew talking with a Samaritan. He was a rabbi, a teacher, a high-ranking Jew talking to a person with a, a really checkered past. And it throws her off a bit. But in doing this, he, he makes sure that she realizes and that we, reading these verses today, realize that, that no one person, no one group has a monopoly on Jesus. Jesus came for everyone. Remember this verse we read just a few weeks ago. For God so loved the world in this way. Not for God so loved the Jews this way. God so loved moral people this way. God so loved the world this way. That he gave his one and only son. So that the righteous will believe? No. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And everyone needs this living water that he offers. Every one of us is chasing every day some sort of desire that, that, that needs to be fulfilled. Every one of us wants to find meaning and purpose and value in our lives. Whether it's following all the rules and being known for your morality, like Nicodemus in chapter 3, or like this woman who has had five husbands and is now living with someone else here in chapter 4. Jesus offers to, to quench that thirst, to, to meet all of those desires. We read in verse 13 that he said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this water coming out from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him, will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will, will become in him or her a, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
Last week, we looked at the second part of this conversation, starting at verse 16, coming up to verse 26, and we looked at how Jesus really laid out the Christian message for her. He talked about sin, which we've defined as, as pursuing satisfaction in something other than God. Then he talked about salvation. Remember, he said that the salvation comes from the Jews. And he, he pointed her to the story of the nation of Israel and said, listen, God has been continually revealing himself through the nation of Israel. And, and if you look at their history, the story of Israel is one of God doing all the work to continually rescue and restore all of humankind to himself. And ultimately, their whole story was pointing to this moment when Jesus himself would come. And he talks with her about how the religious, the deepest religious controversies of the day of of the where and the when and the how to worship, he's saying these things are about to be changed forever. In verse 21, he says, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And down at verse 23, he says, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In this last section that we're going to look at today, we find the climax of the conversation between Jesus and this woman. And we see that she is clearly uh, enthralled with him and, and, and engaged in this conversation, and, and something is happening in her heart. And she runs back to town and tells anyone who will listen to come and see. But in these verses as well, we, we also find a challenge for each one of us who calls ourselves followers of Jesus. As we see Jesus push back on some of the excuses we use to not share the gospel with others. So let's dig in. I'm going to start reading at verse 27. John chapter 4, verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. Remember, his disciples had gone to town to find some food, and Jesus had been sitting by the well uh, himself resting. The disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Now, John notes that that they were surprised that they found Jesus talking not just to a woman, but also to a Samaritan woman. No doubt it took them a while in town to find food because they would have been looking for kosher food. They would have been looking for proper food to bring back out. But now they're back. And we see that they're, they're surprised about Jesus talking with someone who doesn't look like them, who doesn't have a past like them, who worships in a different way, and they're confused. And again, it highlights for us uh, some of the social prejudices of the day. We're not told why they didn't ask these questions. John lists for us two questions that were obviously in their heads, but they didn't say them out. And in other places of the Gospels, we do find them asking um, silly questions or impulsive questions, but for some reason they they hold their tongues here. One of the things that, that we can glean from these two questions is that they, the disciples, hadn't yet grasped John 3.16, that the gospel was for everyone yet. Because they're thinking, Jesus, why are you talking with her? They could understand the conversation in the night with Nicodemus from chapter 3 because he was high-ranking and he was well-respected and he was Jewish. But this woman was none of those things. Why are you talking with her? Their other question is interesting, and it is probably directed at her. What are you seeking? You know, what, what do you want? Why are you here? Why are you engaging in this conversation? 
Remember, and we, we just read from verse 23, Jesus uses the exact same language when he says, the Father seeks those who worship in this way. And now they're saying, who are you seeking? What are you seeking? It's a reminder for us that, that yes, we are all searching for something and, and some of us searching for God, but God is pursuing us even more than we realize. Remember as well, way back in chapter 1, uh, near the end of chapter 1, two of John the Baptist's disciples kind of had seen Jesus go by and they left John and they were now following Jesus. And Jesus, do you remember what he asked him or asked them as they came? What are you seeking? And they say, well, Rabbi, where are you staying? We just want to sort of follow you and see what's going on here. And Jesus says to them, come and see. A few verses later, again in chapter 1, we see that Jesus finds Philip. Philip runs to Nathanael, his brother, and says the same thing. Hey, come and see. We think we found the Messiah. And then when Nathanael comes to Jesus, they have this, this beautiful exchange where, where Jesus says, as he sees Nathanael coming, here's a true Israelite in which there's no deceit. And Nathanael wonders just how Jesus knows him. And, and Jesus continues, before Philip called you, before Philip found you under the tree, I saw you. I knew you. I've been watching for you. I've been waiting for you. And without uh, too much re-preaching of that text, Nathaniel was doing what all good Jewish kids did and what were told to do by their rabbis. He was sitting under the shade of a fig tree. He was studying the scriptures, trying to know God. And so Jesus is saying, you were there. You were doing these things. You were looking for me. You were studying the text. You were earnestly searching for me but I saw you first, Nathaniel. The point is, Jesus is the one that does the seeking. He's the one that, that comes for our hearts. He, he longs to draw us back into a relationship with himself, whether we realize it or not. The disciples here in chapter 4, they, they don't see that. They don't see that Jesus is willing to break with the norm, that, that his message was for everybody, everywhere. And they either didn't think that she was worth sharing the gospel with, or they assumed that she just wouldn't be interested in it. Which is the challenge for each one of us in how we share our faith. How many times have you and I made, made snap judgments in our mind and then held our tongues and not talked to others about Jesus? So many. Oh, their life looks pretty good. They, they probably wouldn't be interested but look at how this woman responds to, to all that Jesus has just told her through the, the verses leading up. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. That's why she came. And she went away into town and said to the people, and we're going to get to what she said to the people in just a minute. But the word, the word people in this verse here could also be translated as the men. So she had this interaction with Jesus who has just revealed himself as the Messiah, the one that, that they're waiting for, the one that, that the Samaritans too are waiting for to come, that they've, they've studied the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and they say, okay, God's going to give us a prophet greater than Moses. I, this seems to be him. And she runs back into town. She goes to the people, at very least the people, perhaps even to the men, which might mean all the men that she's had relationships in the past, because her, her hurt and shame and guilt would be a part of their stories as well. And she says, listen, something's going on here. 
this woman who had deliberately chosen to come out and fetch water for herself in the heat of the day, all alone, to avoid the people of the town, leaves the jar behind and runs to the people. And look what she says in verse 29. Come and see a man who told me all that I've ever done. Can this be the Christ? Come and see, she says. This man knows all about my history, and yet he has treated me so well. And he's interacted with me, and he's, he knows my history with men, but he doesn't expect anything from me. He knows my heart. He knows my brokenness, and he's offering to make me whole. Can this be the Christ? Contrast her response in this moment to the disciples. The disciples are wondering why Jesus would even bother with her. And she ran back to town to tell anyone who would listen. Now, she's not fully convinced here, and this gives me great hope and courage as well. There's a hint of doubt in her language. Can can this be the Christ? But she still runs and she still tells everyone that she sees. And the lesson for us is that, that we don't need to have all the answers in order to be a witness. We don't have to have all the minutia sorted out before we can tell people who Jesus is and what he's done and what he is doing in our lives. We just have to tell what we know and keep on seeking, keep on pursuing ourselves as well. Verse 30, the woman kind of fades out of the story, but we will see the implications of this proclamation, this testimony soon. Verse 30 says, they, this is the people that she talked to, they went out of town and were coming to Jesus. The people in the town are now coming to Jesus, and then John shifts the scene back to this picture of the well for a good little portion of teaching between Jesus and his followers. Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. Remember, again, Jesus was sitting there because he was tired, he was thirsty, they had gone to get food. But Jesus said to them, We continue reading, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone else brought him food that we don't know about? We find our narrator, John, as he writes here, once again using misunderstanding to draw us into the story, but to also further reveal Jesus' plans. And he's done this several times. Remember, there was misunderstanding and confusion with Jesus talking to Nicodemus about being born again. This older man's wondering, how on earth can I go back into my mother and be born again? Jesus, this doesn't make sense. Then there was misunderstanding when Jesus was talking about living water and, and the Samaritan woman still thinking, well, I'm thirsty. I don't want to have to come out here and get water every day. And now he's talking about this food that that they don't know that he has, but somehow he's got it, and what's going on here? Jesus clarifies in verse 34 for us. He says to them, My food, the thing that is sustaining me, that keeps me going, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What's Jesus saying here? Have you ever found yourself so engrossed in a project that all of a sudden, nothing else seems to matter and time just flies by. We say often, you know, I I just lost track of time. I don't know what happened. 
Uh, for me, a couple of months back, uh, Naomi and the kids were away, and so I planned to do a whole bunch of kind of painting, a big refresh in our kitchen, uh, you know, countertops and tile and cabinets that kind of did the whole thing. Everyone was gone, so I could spend a few days just sort of eating over the sink, and that would be fine with me. I'm okay with that. The, the, the kitchen was a disaster while I had appliances moved and all these things, and for four of us to live in that was a mess, but for me, I, whatever, it's fine. We'll get the project done, and it's good. But once I got going in the project, doing laps around the kitchen with brushes and and rollers, time got away from me more than once in those few days. And I didn't realize that I'd completely missed a meal time or it was now really late and I probably should have been in bed already. Does anyone else ever have that happen? Even some days I come into the office and I just put my head down and get, get you know, going on a project and then my, my phone beeps, it's time to go get the, the kids from school or whatever, and I think, man, I'm, I'm kind of hungry and realize that I, I have completely skipped lunch. This is sort of what Jesus is talking about here, but of course so much more. See, Jesus, as we read in chapter 2, he knows our hearts. And so he, he knows what's going on in this woman's hearts. And he's now, now seen her run off back to town. He maybe even can see the crowd coming at a distance back out to him. And he says, listen, boys, there's no time to eat right now. There's no question that Jesus is actually still hungry, probably still thirsty. We don't actually read that he had a drink, but maybe she had drawn water and left her water jar there, and so maybe he scooped a little drink there. But, but remember, the whole reason he stopped was because he was tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. But in this moment, there's something way more important going on than eating and drinking. Salvation was coming to this town and this people. As one writer says, he doesn't want to get distracted by anything else. Jesus is demonstrating for us the urgency of the gospel. It's not something we just get to when we feel about it. It's not something that takes a back seat to breakfast. John Calvin comments on this passage as well, writing, By his example, Jesus shows us that the kingdom of God should have priority over all bodily comforts. Jesus was talking about his work, and so Jesus' work was to do the will of God and accomplish the Lord's work. And so Jesus' work was to advance God's kingdom, restore lost souls to life, and spread the light of the gospel and bring salvation to the world. Too many Christians, myself included, and too many churches easily get distracted by lesser things than the gospel. This week, I, I had the opportunity to, to go up and spend a day at Sunshine by myself, just doing a, f- a few laps, and I had a few different podcasts in my ears as I did, and, and in one of them I, I was listening to, there's a guy who, who speaks to all kinds of different pastors. He's kind of a, a leadership coach and a church coach and all these things, and he said, I had, uh, he, he was talking about more than one conversation, but one pastor said to him, you know what might bring down my church in this season? Sometimes, maybe you've heard of this, churches have conflict and then split, and it, it's not always nice. He says, you know what might actually cause my church to split in this COVID season? masks. Now, I don't want to sit in that statement for too long, but I do want to sit here long enough for it to be uncomfortable. The pastor in question wasn't saying that masks are a good thing or not, and I won't either at this point, but that church and so many others are distracted There's been infighting kind of stirred up about wearing masks or not, about reopening or not, whether distancing or not. 
and it's dividing churches. And so here's where I'll come down this morning. A hundred years from now, when every single one of us is dead and gone, will wearing a mask to church matter? What if we focused all that energy on telling people about Jesus instead? Because there's lots of messages about Jesus and Christians on social media right now, and not many of them are good. What if we focused our energy on telling people about the real Jesus, the true Jesus? We can study these things. We have looked and seen that that the mental health stuff is through the roof right now and has been for about a year, and we can kind of calculate why. But studies have also shown that that those who are a part of a church, who regularly uh, gather in whatever it looks like, in community, who follow Jesus, are not as impacted mental health-wise. There's something about church that is helping people cope and through and get through, and why are we not sharing that? I'll say this, though. Fighting about masks will 100% absolutely affect our ability to have a witness to the world around us. And so, frankly, who cares if I have a really great point about masks or numbers or whatever if it costs me the ability to tell someone about Jesus in the process? We see people on social do this all the time. They make a great point and they just leave in their wake bloodied bodies of people who need Jesus. Now, beyond all this that's related to COVID, just even doing church, having a Sunday gathering can distract us from the mission. We're in the middle of a building campaign as well, and and we've talked about it many times that the mission is not a renovation or a building project, but the building is a tool to help us further the mission. And so we can get distracted by this nice pictures on the wall and the website and, and conversations and fundraising and all these things. We can get distracted from the actual mission And so I've appreciated that the elders and the building team are are keeping me out of some conversations, even when I really want to be a part of them. Because it's easy for me to get distracted at at a level I don't need to, to know about building plans and projects and who have you talked to and what about this thing and preparing for all these things at the cost of not pushing the mission forward. Because the mission is not having a right stance on masks. The mission is not having a new building The mission is to see people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ because he promises life, abundant life, eternal life, today, tomorrow, forever. Jesus continues and pushes back even further on his disciples. Verse 35. He says, don't you say there are yet four months and then the harvest is coming? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. He's saying, you guys, you know the time, you know that harvesting happens at this time, you plant, you wait, you harvest, but look, you got to know these times too. The time is right now. Look, maybe they can even see the Samaritans coming out. We are going to see the fruit of the gospel right here, right now, guys. Pay attention. How often do we say, you know, I'll get to sharing later. I do it. 
And, and yes, I, I agree and believe that there's value in actually building a bit of a relationship before diving right in, although Jesus didn't have too much of a relationship here, did he? He just started a conversation. But Jesus is, is driving home the urgency of the gospel here. He's saying the harvest is now. Charles Spurgeon uh, didn't pull any punches when he was preaching on this verse to his congregation. He said, Some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings, to the Bible readings and prophetic conferences and other forms of spiritual indulgence would be a good deal better Christians if you would just look after the poor and needy around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much the sickness of Christians come through their having nothing to do. Another sermon, another Bible study, more head knowledge but not working it out. He says, all feeding and no working gives men and women spiritual indigestion. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no object, in fact, to live for. And who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you're ready to die of despair? We don't, we don't want to make excuses for not telling people about Jesus. Don't, don't believe that they will not be interested. Don't, don't believe that you're just too busy. And don't believe, wow, I'll just do it later. Our last few verses that we'll get to this morning encourage us to, to start now, to start praying for others, to start talking to others, and to start to think about those who are already in our circle of influence, to, to pray the Lord would put someone on your heart and, and in your path and that he would set up some divine appointments for you. Verse 36, Jesus continues and he says, Already the one who, receive, who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying hold true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into the labor. He's saying, guys, it's harvest time. Now. We are, we are only a little bit into Jesus' public ministry, right? We're at chapter 4 of 21 at this point. But the promises of God are starting to come true in him. The kingdom is coming. The, the eschatological age, the end time age has dawned. The fulfillment of the Old Testament is coming through Jesus. And now many who have been sowing for generations, who have been talking about the God of Israel for generations and drawing people to this God forever, will, not be, will now be sowing and harvesting together, drawing this new community of Jesus' followers together. The encouragement for, for you and I is to to remember that we never know what part of the process we're playing here. But we just keep planting seeds. Just keep sowing. I've heard studies that say that the person might need about seven to nine meaningful interactions with Christians before being ready to consider making a decision for Christ. Now, for some people, that number might be significantly higher. For others, it might be lower, but you get the point. Perhaps the conversation you have with a neighbor or a coworker, where you, where you bring up Jesus and say what Jesus has done in your life is, is only number one or two for them. But maybe it's number six 
Maybe it's, maybe it's number 10. But everyone is a part of the process, the sowing and the reaping, the harvest is plentiful. The Apostle Paul talks about this a bit later in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, you know what? I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so we speak. We, we live reflecting Jesus to the world around us. We, we love our neighbors. We love our communities. Maybe even or especially when they don't love us. And by doing so, we're planting seeds and planting seeds. And we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray by name that God would bring the growth. Look what happens to this town. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony that he told me all I ever did. This woman, who was a social outcast from this town, she spent some time with Jesus and then went right back to the middle of town, perhaps even to the men she'd known and been with, and she said, forget drawing water from this well. There is something about this guy. He might be the one we've all been waiting for. And the people who would have been aware of who she was, they saw something was different in her, and they needed to investigate as well. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, no doubt they had a bit of a conversation. They asked Jesus to stay with them, and Jesus stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And then they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, but as we have now heard it ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. When the town came out and met Jesus, they were all radically changed, too. There is no reason that Samaritans would invite a Jewish rabbi to stay with them unless they truly believed that he was indeed the Savior of the world. Consider, again, the whole story that we've looked at in this chapter. The woman meets Jesus. He talks about living water, and she starts to connect the pieces that he just might be the Messiah. She's not totally sure, but she's convinced enough that she, she leaves behind her water jug to go boldly testify in town about Jesus. Now, the townsfolk themselves, they may not be totally sure, but there's something going on here with this woman, so they, at her pleading, come to Jesus. And they meet Jesus, and their lives are changed forever. The seeds are sown. Change is happening. This morning on the way in, I had my, my reading plan and my headphones, and in Acts chapter 8, we read about the gospel, the full gospel, and the Holy Spirit coming to the Samaritans. Maybe this is the planting of it as well, right? See, this is, this is the beauty of the gospel. When it's clearly explained, faithfully shared, people come to Jesus. And God does a great work in hearts of, of many who are far from him because he's constantly seeking them. One of my favorite verses in the Bible that gives me great hope and courage is Acts 4.13, where you see that the religious people saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, 
common men, but they were astonished. And they recognized that these two had been with Jesus. I think I'm pretty common. I think uh, I've got a little bit of education. But what I need for boldness is constantly that last piece, to be with Jesus. And I pray and pray and pray that, that when people, maybe if you're tuning in, when people see me on the street, when they see me, they, they see some, maybe some courage to say some things, some boldness in how I live, some, some ways that maybe don't line up with what culture says I should do to, to raise my kids or love my wife or, or whatever else. And I say, what's going on there? And they recognize that, that I have been with Jesus. Because I know that, that, that when I start to spend time with him, like good time, not just because I have to because I'm a pastor or not just because I know I should read the Bible, so let's read a bit of the Bible and la-di-la-di-da. But when I come and say, Jesus, I want to spend time with you, he starts to work in and through my life and that gives me a confidence, a hope, it gives me peace, it gives me grace, it gives me salvation and that's a message I can share. I love that, that God gives us a role to play in this. That, that he does the work. He's, he's the one seeking people. He's the one drawing, to, to, drawing people to himself. And, and one day we're promised there will be a, a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and valley worshiping him. But we get to share this message so that God will use it to draw people to himself. And then we get to share in the, in the joy of people coming to Jesus. Imagine the disciples, how blown away they would have been when this town comes out. Maybe they thought, okay, we're, we're, we're in big trouble. Here comes the, mo- the mob. Jesus, what have you said to her? And they've gone from, in just a few verses that we've looked at this morning, Jesus, why are you talking to her? to spending the next two days with the town, with the people, celebrating with the Samaritans in their town, in their homes, all that Jesus has done for them and through them. Let me wrap up with these words about Jesus from Augustine. He wrote this, You are ever active, yet always at rest. You gather all things to yourself, though you suffer no need. You welcome those who come to you, though you never lost them. You release us from your debts, but you lose nothing thereby. You are my God, my life, my holy delight. But is this enough to say of you? Can any man say enough when he speaks of you? Yet woe betide those who are silent about you. Let me pray. And so, God, I thank you for these verses that we've looked at today. And and these verses we've looked at over these past three weeks as we've looked at this meeting Jesus had with the Samaritan woman and her testimony bringing salvation to the entire town. Jesus, I I pray that that those of us who have been following you for some time would be reminded of all that you've done for us that you would put your finger on some things we need to deal with, and then you would bring healing and forgiveness to those things that we might continually run to those around us and, like this woman, proclaim, come and meet the one who told me everything I ever did. Jesus, forgive us for holding our tongues, 
Forgive us for the times that we've assumed evangelism is something that just a few people in the church can or should do, that, that it's the pastor's job or the elder's job or, or the paid missionary's job, but remind each of us that we all have a story to tell and we all have a role to play in building your kingdom. Jesus, for those who are listening in that are, that are trying to earn your favor like Nicodemus in the last chapter, trying to do everything right so they get it and still feel like something's missing, speak to their hearts and draw them to you. And for those who would more likely identify with this woman and say, you know what, you don't know all the things that I've done. I, I'm too far gone. Holy Spirit, speak to their hearts. Remind them that there is nothing that you haven't overcome in your death, Jesus, to be with us. Holy Spirit, keep seeking us as we also seek you. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.